Well, this morning uh, we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper, which we normally do here at Plum Creek every third Sunday, but every fifth Sunday, which works out to once a quarter, we uh, are dedicating kind of a special emphasis uh, to this important New Testament ordinance. You know, the Lord uh, left us with two what we call ordinances, uh, two things to continue doing until he comes. One of those is water baptism of believers, which water baptism does not save you, but it certainly is an outward expression of the inward faith that a person has expressed in Christ for salvation. And the other ordinance is the Lord's Supper. And uh, so as I mentioned earlier in the service, we invite every believer to join us in this special uh, remembrance. And uh, each uh, fifth Sunday, we're going to kind of really take a component of the Lord's Supper and really emphasize it and focus on it and see what God's Word has to say. And today, I want us to focus on the blood of Christ. You know, the, the, the Lord's Supper has the two components, the bread and the wine. The Lord, on the very night that He was betrayed in the upper room, uh, broke bread with His disciples uh, uh, in Passover week, and He uh, paused and He said, you know, this this bread represents my body, which is broken for you. And indeed, within hours, he would be beaten and mercilessly, and his body would very much be uh, broken, and he would be crucified on the cross. And then a little bit later in the meal, he took uh, the cup, and he said, this represents my blood, uh, the new covenant in my blood. And so uh, after my message this morning, we're going to partake together of the Lord's Supper, but I've chosen this morning to to take that second component, the blood. And I want us to turn to Hebrews uh, chapter 9. You know, we studied the book of Hebrews a little more than a year ago. And so we're going to turn back to it again, and especially in uh, chapter 9. It's interesting, the word blood is used 12 times in Hebrews uh, chapter 9. And so it's a great passage. The theme of the redeeming blood of Christ runs throughout the entire Bible. It's seen in the animals that were killed in Eden to provide garments for Adam and Eve. It's seen in the ram that took Isaac's place on the altar in Moriah. It's seen, of course, in the Passover lamb in Egypt and the institution of the sacrificial system in the scarlet rope of Rahab and the sacrifices that were performed in the tabernacle and the temple. The crimson thread runs all the way up to John the Baptist's declaration, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it runs to the foot of the cross where Jesus finally says, It is finished. And although we sing about the blood and read about the blood in Scripture, I wonder if we really understand the significance of the blood. I think it's become more symbolic and indeed it is symbolic in some ways, than a reality. So I want to try to walk us through the significance of the blood this morning. Of course, in verse 22 of Hebrews 9, we read, The law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. As you know, I normally uh, use the New King James as, as my teaching uh, English version of preference, but New King James and King James say remission, and that's a word that is less familiar to many people, so I chose the New International Version in this case because it, it uh, accurately describes remission as forgiveness. So think about that for a moment. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. 
That's because, as Paul pointed out in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, because of sin, somebody had to die. Blood had to be shed. We know that when we sinned in the garden, and yes, we were right there sinning with Adam. We don't, uh, you know, we're born sinners. Sin tainted the blood of mankind. Romans 5.12 says sin is passed down to all men because all have sinned. And when we, uh, we sinned, we brought spiritual death on ourselves as well as physical death. But the remedy that God provided for our sin is a sacrificial death so that you and I don't have to face that eternal death ourselves. The wages of sin is death. Somebody had to die. Ultimate remedy for sin, of course, is the shed blood of Christ, the perfect Lamb of God without blemish or spot. And when we accept His payment on our behalf by faith, in that moment we're reborn and receive the gift of, eternally, of, of eternal life. So spiritually speaking, we receive a blood transfusion so that our blood, tainted as it were by sin, is replaced by the blood of Christ, spiritually speaking. So every time you cut your finger or scrape your knee or see blood, it should remind you of the curse of sin. Now that never happened in the garden prior to the fall. They didn't need band-aids in the garden. Uh, the fall of man introduced evil and suffering and disease and death and uncertainty and food production. That's something that we're going to, I think, hear a lot more about in the coming months as we uh, see the stage being set for the end times. But the fall of man brought about many other curses as well. So as we take a look at this theme of blood uh, throughout Scripture, I'm going to give you just a quick fly-by overview, if you will, and, and hit some hot spots leading up to the cross. So again, our focal passage is Hebrews 9. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn with me there. I will put the verses on the screen, but I encourage you to look at your own Bibles as well. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, we have some out on the resource table. Those are our gift to you. Feel free to pick one up. Or if you know somebody who needs a Bible, please, uh, no greater gift that you can give someone than uh, the Word of God. So the theme of Scripture, really from beginning to end, is look to Jesus. He paid the price for your sin when He shed His precious, perfect, unblemished blood. And He is there for us. God was there in the garden waiting to provide the remedy for the predicament that Adam and Eve got themselves into. And when you come to Hebrews, that's precisely what the author of Hebrews is trying to get the first century Christians to do. As they faced unspeakable persecution in the late 60s AD under the Roman Emperor Nero, they were contemplating abandoning the community of faith, the Christian community, and reverting back to Judaism, which at that time was still under the protective umbrella, still in cahoots with, with Rome. And so the writer of Hebrews comes along and says, Jesus is far better than, any, better than any sacrificial system because his blood is better than the blood of bulls and rams and goats and sheep. So first, some background before we get to those five verses. Uh, chapter 9 in Hebrews is all about the shadows that pointed to Christ. Now, we've been talking about in our 9 o'clock hour in the millennium, how the sacrificial system then will point back to the ultimate reality of Christ as well, and the shadows will be even clearer, be, be even more obvious this side of the cross. But in any event, the sacrificial system never saved anybody. 
A Jew did not get saved and gain eternal life and the positional forgiveness of sins because they went through the ritualistic ceremonies of Judaism. All of that, especially as the writer of Hebrews makes plain, was intended to point to the ultimate sacrifice in Christ. Every human being from Adam forward is saved eternally the same way, by faith. Abraham believed God, had faith, and was declared positionally righteous. And that's the only way anyone can ever be saved. But the Judaistic system foreshadowed and created sort of a foretaste of the ultimate means by which God would provide redemption for mankind. And that redemption can only come with the shedding of blood. But see, I couldn't shed my blood for you, and you couldn't shed your blood for me, nor could we shed our blood for our loved ones, our children, our grandchildren, because our blood was guilty in and of itself. It was already tainted. We didn't have any room on our shoulders to, to bear the sins of anyone else because we've got our own sin penalty to pay. So only a perfect human sacrifice could pay the penalty for the sins of mankind. And that's Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God who put on human flesh, was born of a virgin, lived a perfect, holy, sinless life, and went down the Via Dolorosa up the hill called Golgotha to pay for your penalty when he shed his blood. So back to Hebrews, we see it was written in the late 60s A.D., so the church was some 30 years old at this time, and persecution was intensifying. Paul is the likely author. I tend to believe it was Paul, but we can't be dogmatic about that because the biblical record is anonymous. Uh, but whoever wrote it, it was written to Jewish believers uh, as this persecution was intensifying, encouraging them to look to Jesus. Because the one that you're thinking about abandoning is the very one who shed his blood for you. So these people were believers. Um, obviously, there were some unbelievers in the, in the community, uh, just like there are in churches today. But by and large, these are people who had heard the gospel, trusted in Christ and him alone for salvation. But now, because of the intense persecution, were thinking about abandoning and forsaking the assembling of themselves together with others that were part of the way, because that would identify them as Christians and make them targets, and instead sort of drifting away from the church and kind of just hiding within the realm of, of unbelieving Jews. And so the writer, the key verse is in Hebrews chapter 12, says, look to Jesus. He's the author and finisher of your faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So if we look at verse 11, uh, we read, Christ has come as the high priest of the good things to come. We're going to talk about this a little bit more in a second. But in the context, he's already talked about the, the priests, the high priest, lowercase h and p, that served the community of, in Israel, and how Christ is the once for all high priest. Notice, of the good things to come, as we talked about in our 9 o'clock hour, the writer of Hebrews never says the new covenant is fully enforced today. He speaks of Christ as the mediator of that new covenant, but will not be fully enforced, according to Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, until Christ comes back and takes the throne. What we see today is a foretaste of that incredible glory. But he says he's come as a high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, 
how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serving the living God. See, works can never save anybody. It's not by works of righteousness which we've done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. And that mercy is uh, never more vividly expressed than in the picture of Christ's death and resurrection on the cross. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So I hope, if you're here this morning, that you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. I hope that, uh, like many Jews in the first century, you're not still trying to obtain favor with God and make yourself right with God through ritualistic works or behavior or good deeds, because uh, Isaiah makes it clear that our righteous acts are like filthy rags to a holy God. There's nothing that we can do to merit uh, mercy and justice in God's eyes. We can't bridge that gap on our own. Uh, some people may be more moral than others. Some people may be more righteous than others. But God doesn't grade on the curve. It's not about being 99% righteous. You know, sometimes people tell me as I'm out at conferences, I'll hear people make the comment, you know, I may not be perfect, but I'm better than most. Well, the problem is you're not perfect. You, you may be better than most, but you've got to be perfect. Matthew 5:48, Jesus said himself, you've got to be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect. And the only way to obtain that perfection is to receive the free gift of Christ who shed his perfect blood for you and offers to you the gift of eternal life. And we see this theme of the crimson thread of the blood of Christ all through Scripture. And so I just want to highlight several key moments as we trace this theme through Scripture and prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. In coming uh, quarterly Lord's Supper uh, meetings, we may focus on the body of Christ, or we may focus on other themes of the Lord's Supper. But today, I really want you to think in your mind's eye about what it means for Christ to shed his blood. So I think the first glimpse that we see of this is the promised solution in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when God speaks to Satan in the form of the serpent and says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, notice the capital S there, speaking of the ultimate seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, and he shall bruise your head, he's going to utterly crush Satan someday, and you shall bruise his heel. So yeah, Satan will inflict a, a wound, but it's not going to be an ultimate mortal wound because Christ defeated death, hell, and the grave when he rose from the dead. So that's the first inkling we get of uh, Christ as God's, you know, perfect sacrifice, the eternal Son of God. Uh, and we call that the protevangelium in theological circles, proto meaning first, euangelium meaning gospel, the first earliest reference to the gospel that we see in Scripture. But then later on in that same chapter, we see the prepared skin covering, the prepared skin covering as God interacts with Adam and Eve. And the Bible tells us, for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. I really want you to stop and think about this for a moment, what it must have been like in that moment. You mean, Adam and Eve had never seen blood. There were no cuts, scrapes, bruises before the fall. No animals died. Death had not entered the realm of time, space, and matter yet. So when Adam and Eve saw God kill the animals to cover them, it had to be shocking. Remember, they were fellowshipping with these animals. 
They were their pets, basically. Um, and for the first time, we see, represented by these animals, the efficacy of blood providing forgiveness. God had said, in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Death, new concept to them. Not anymore. The first bloodshed symbolized the blood that would flow from the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Then we see this theme continued in Genesis chapter 4 with the proper sacrifice. Do you remember the story of Cain and Abel? The Bible tells us the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. Why not? The Bible doesn't explicitly tell us this, but I think it's clear from the theme of the shed blood, and without the shedding of blood there's no forgiveness of sins, that Abel's offering was more acceptable to, be God, to God because it involved the shed blood of animals. It wasn't just fruits and vegetables and produce. It was shed blood, the proper sacrifice. And then most vividly, we come to Genesis chapter 22 in the story of Abraham and Isaac, and we see the crimson thread represented through the provided substitute. The provided substitute. I love this story. I'm sure you do too. Not just a story like something you would read in a fictional children's book, but a historical reality and a historical account. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And then he said, look, the fire and the wood. Remember, in that day, they didn't have you know, matches or butane lighters or you know, electricity. So they carried the fire on a stick, torches. And that's what they would then use to light the wood. Look, Dad, the fire and the wood, but, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. So the two of them went together. And you remember so much about that story, I'm, I'm sure, that is touching, uh, such as when Abraham left with Isaac to go up the hill, he told his servants, the two of us will come back. See, Abraham knew that somehow God was going to work this out because he is Jehovah Jireh, Yahweh Jireh, the Lord our provider. And we see this crimson thread is a perfect picture here in, in the story of Abraham and Isaac, and of course, God did provide uh, the ram, as you know. So the provided substitute. Then we see, of course, as we move on in uh, human history, we see the children of Israel being rescued from uh, each bondage in Egypt, and we see, according to Exodus 12, the Passover sign, once again, reminding us of the necessity of blood to provide a covering. Uh, we read, "The blood shall be a sign for when I." For, for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. This, of course, is the genesis of the Passover celebration in Israel. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the lamb, land of Egypt. Of course, Jesus Christ became the ultimate Passover lamb some 1,500 years later. And then, as we see the children of Israel... Uh, Looking over the promised land of Canaan, we see the crimson thread represented in the protected spies. You know, often in, in biblical covenants, God appointed some physical or material token to remind the people of what he had promised. God gave the rainbow as the token of the covenant with Noah. His covenant with Abraham was sealed by the rite of circumcision. When God established his covenant with Israel at Sinai, 
Both the covenant book and the covenant people were sprinkled with blood, Exodus 24. The writer of Hebrews talks about this in the section just after our text this morning, beginning in verse 16. And the Lord Jesus Christ used the broken bread and the cup as tokens of the new covenant. All of it pointing toward the fact that God ultimately is the one who can provide salvation. He doesn't force it on us, however. He makes it available. Uh, you have to receive it. A gift must be freely offered and freely received. Forced love is no love at all. So God says, whosoever will may come. He's not willing that any should perish. He wants all men to be saved, the Bible tells us. But each person has a choice. Are you going to believe the gospel and receive the free gift? John 1.12 says, To as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name. The means by which we receive the free gift is faith. More than 160 times the New Testament conditions eternal life upon faith alone in Christ alone. Faith is the mechanism of receiving the gift. If I offered you a, a gift like this bottle of water, and I said, I'd like you to have this, the way you would receive it was you'd crack grasp it with your hand or your hands that's the way we exchange physical gifts with a physical reception but the spiritual gift of eternal life which is man's greatest need isn't received physically with our hands it's received through the mechanism of faith when we believe the gospel in that moment we receive eternal life flip over to ephesians it's not on the screen but it just popped into my mind here ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. Let's pick it up in verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, there it is again, according to the riches of His grace. What is grace? It's a free gift. It's undeserved mercy if it's not free it's not grace see a lot of people talk about grace but they add requirements to it right which he made abound to us in all wisdom and prudence having known to us the mystery of his will according to the good pleasure which he has purposed in himself that in the dispensation of the fullness of times that's today he might gather together in one all things in christ both which are in heaven and are on earth in him we also obtain an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Now watch this. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of the truth of the gospel of your salvation. Now here it is. In whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of the inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So when do we receive the seal of salvation? Having believed. You don't get saved and then believe. You get saved because you believe. Faith is the instrumental cause of eternal salvation. That's how we receive the gift. So God always sort of gives these these physical tokens or materials to remind people of what was promised. And in the case of Rahab, the spies instructed her to hang a scarlet rope out of the window of her house that was built into the wall around the cities. Joshua 2, Then he said, According to your words, so be it. And she sent them away, and they departed. And she bound the scarlet cord 
in the window. The scarlet cord has been taken to be a sign of the blood of Christ, the Lamb of God, all the way back to Clement of Rome, who was a contemporary of other New Testament apostles in the first century. In fact, Philippians chapter 4, verse 3 may actually be a reference to that Clement. We, we can't say for sure, but Clement is mentioned there, and it's probably that early church father, Clement. The scarlet rope would identify the house of safety to the army of Israel when they came to take the city. The color of the rope is significant because it, it reminds us of the blood. Just as the blood on the doorposts in Egypt marked a house that the angel of death was to pass over, so this scarlet rope marked a house on the walls of Jericho whose occupants the Jewish soldiers were to pass over. Rahab let the men down from the window with that rope and kept it in the window from that hour on. This was the sure sign of the covenant that she had asked for. God spared the lives of Rahab and her household because of her faith. Any of Rahab's relatives that would have gathered with her before the Israelites' siege would have done so because of their faith in God's promise that was given to them through the spies. If they had no faith, they would have stayed in their own homes if they didn't believe in this means of rescue. So the deliverance of Rahab and her family depended upon believing the promise of God. You know, salvation always depends on us believing the promise of God. Jesus said in John 6, 47, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whoever believes in me has everlasting life. He said in John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in me has everlasting life. Do you believe that promise? If you believe that promise, John goes on to tell us that you've passed from death to life and shall never come into judgment. John 5, 24. Now, if you don't believe that promise then you're going to die in your sins, John 8, 24. But if you believe that promise, if you trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone as the only one to save you, because He shed His blood for you and paid your penalty, He paid a debt He didn't know because we owed a debt we could never pay, then you can have eternal life. And it's that promise of redemption that we're focusing on this morning through the blood. Number seven, we see in Exodus the priestly smock. The priestly smock as the Jewish system comes into full bloom. Uh, the priestly smock was what they would wear. It was an ephod. Um, and we read about in Hebrews 9 that the priestly service, of course, foreshadowed in the text we read the ultimate high priest himself, Jesus Christ. But notice they shall take the gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread and the fine linen, and they shall make the ephod of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen artistically worked. See, Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of that. Earlier in Hebrews, we didn't read this this morning, but it talked about how the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. The next verse goes on to say how they would then also go in once a year, the high priest would, uh, to enter the Holy of Holies. But Christ is our ultimate one and only once and forever high priest. We read in our text, Christ came as the high priest of the good things to come. And the priestly smock continues that theme. And then we see the prescribed sin offering in the Levitical Code. The prescribed sin offering. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people. Bring its blood inside the veil. This is talking about the Day of Atonement. Do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. 
Remember, according to Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There's no forgiveness. And then, of course, we see it in the prophesied Savior of Isaiah 53. The prophesied Savior. For He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him. And by His stripes we are healed. He goes on. He was oppressed and He was afflicted. Yet He opened not His mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so He opened not His mouth. And then we see it in the perfect sacrifice. The perfect sacrifice. New Testament makes this abundantly clear. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. See, it's because of Christ's shed blood that we can be made right again with a holy God. We can be reconciled to Him. We are adopted into the family of God. You know, when you trust Christ, so many things happen in that instant when faith meets the gospel. In that split second, when faith meets the gospel, you become born again, born from above, adopted into the family of God, declared positionally righteous, reconciled to a holy God. Uh, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. You're eternally secure in that moment. And so many other things happen. Peter describes it this way. We're not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold or indulgences or keeping the sacraments or doing good works. But with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. without spot. And in Hebrews 9, 12, which we read, says, With his own blood, with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And that's why John the Baptist would say, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, the perfect sacrifice. Christ's death was the fulfillment of all prophecy. In Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, we read, He was slain before the foundation of the world. Remember, God exists in the eternal now. He created time, space, and matter when He spoke the world into existence, but He is eternal. And somehow, though we don't understand it with our finite minds, even though the death and resurrection of Christ occurred historically at a moment in time roughly 2,000 years ago, from God's perspective, it was before the foundation of the world. First Peter 1.20 says, He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world what was manifest in these last times for you. From Genesis to Revelation, all roads lead to Jesus. So what is the crimson thread, or better, who is the crimson thread? thread well he's the hero of the story it's Jesus Jesus said no one takes my life from me but I lay it down of myself I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it up again as he showed Jesus planned to die he was destined to die he was willing to die he came to die he was born to die he lived to die but he didn't stay dead. He rose again, defeating death, hell, and the grave, and offers to all the free gift of eternal life. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In Matthew chapter 11, he said it this way, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You know, we have the distinct benefit of living at a time in human history 
when we look back to the widely attested historical account of the crucifixion and resurrection. We don't have to try to wonder and visualize and think about <clears throat> what does that blood over the doorpost represent? You know, what are those skins of the animals represent? What is that scarlet thread really pointing toward? We can look back now to the most widely attested event in human history, the death and resurrection of Christ, and we understand that it's only through him that we can be saved. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said, no one comes to the Father except through me. So as we think about the takeaway, and as we transition to the Lord's Supper, the takeaway is simply this. As the writer of Hebrews said, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. It ought to be very easy to do if you read the Bible and if you understand God's redemptive plan. We can look to Jesus. And if you're here today and you know the Lord, we invite you to partake uh, with us of uh, the elements here as we transition to the Lord's Supper. If you're here today and you're not certain of your eternal destiny, today is the day of salvation. Right now where you're sitting, you can place your faith in Jesus Christ. It's not about you know, walking an aisle or signing a card or raising a hand or any other type of special arrangement. Faith is inherently personal. And when you come to the point in your life when you say, I'm a sinner on the road to hell under the penalty of sin with no hope whatsoever in this world, and I'm trusting in Jesus Christ, God's Son and my Savior, as the only one who can save me. When you've placed your faith in Jesus, in that moment, you're saved. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for uh, just this incredible theme of the shed blood of Christ. And Lord, how uh, you remind us through this uh, ongoing ordinance of this present church age of how precious that blood is. Oh, precious is the flow that makes us white as snow. And Lord, now as we partake, uh, we just pray that you would uh, not only remind us afresh of your incredible grace and mercy in our lives, but also help us to look forward to the return of Christ, as your word says that we are to do this until he comes. And so we pray all this now in Jesus' name.